All right. This ep- this podcast, it's been a while since an episode has been aired. In fact, it's been a long time since an episode has been produced. Paul and I have taken a little bit of a, not a purposeful break, but it just seems to be working out that way. So I thought I got to get my other crew on here. So Justin and Salim are coming to us from Tokyo on a fine Sunday evening there time. Welcome, gentlemen. Thank you. Thank you. Good to be back again. It was beautiful out today. The, the weather shifting here in Tokyo, we're hopefully moving away from the chilly rain. And I think we're in, I guess, that one week of spring that we get before we turn to sweltering heat. We had uh, cold weather until about two weeks ago, and then suddenly it went from eight, nine degrees to like 20, 25. Mm-hmm. To, yesterday it was 27 degrees, which is a bit warmer typically than May. But the weather in Canada, or at least this part where I'm in, typically could go back down to like 12 next week. So don't want to jinx it. Um, but gentlemen, thanks thanks for coming on. And uh, let's just do a quick, tiny update on COVID in, in Tokyo slash Japan right now. What's what's happening there these days? Justin, do you want to cover this? Yeah, yeah I, I mean, what's happening, I, I don't know that that much has shifted. There, there hasn't been a lot of official communication. It's been kind of like hands off, uh, fairly. Uh, people are kind of left to their own devices. But every once in a while, there is a government announcement. And the most recent one was reaffirming how in public, outside, when walking or when moving about the city or moving about Japan in general, it's safe to not be wearing a mask. Uh, that with distancing in public, that's okay. And that's as close as you get to kind of a big change or shift in agenda. There's still plenty of cases. There's still um, people who are getting COVID. Um, that's the reality. I see it in my in my kids' school, the weekly update and the numbers of, of people who are still getting it here and there. Every once in a while, there's a sleepover and then you have eight kids who get it you know, all at once, because there, there is a bit of this kind of relaxing of guard in a way that's, that's slowly. Yeah. Like getting it isn't seen as this, uh, Mm -hmm. like thing you almost have to keep silent and not silent, but you're, you know, afraid to talk about it. Mm -hmm. Like recently here people get it and it's like, I've been amazed how many times you mention it. Like I had it two weeks ago, Mm -hmm. three weeks ago. Mm -hmm. And it's amazing. Almost everyone I talked to said, oh yeah, we had it back in December or, Mm -hmm. We well, my my mother had it in in February. It's like nobody was talking about that mm-hmm. back then, but mm-hmm. now now everyone's talking about it. Sounds like it's similar there. It is, yeah. And you know, to to one of the points, I guess you can kind of maybe touch on how it's affecting things there in Canada. There is also kind of a desire to return to some of the normalcy, and that goes to commerce as well. Um, you know, the yen has taken a hit recently against uh, a lot of currencies and i think there's enough pressure on leadership to kind of open things up a bit try and get some tourism dollars in here so they're they're running their first test case (laughs) there's been a lot of talk about how they're going to relax the rules and how um, even people who are long-term residents here can bring over uh, people, depending if you're a permanent resident, you could bring up to two degrees of relationship. If you're a long-term resident, you can bring up to one degree of re- uh, 
a relationship. So in my case, it would be either a father or mother or a child of mine that's living overseas. I could actually quote unquote sponsor them now on a, on a temporary tourist visa. So right now that's already been relaxed. There are some hoops to have to, you have to jump through to get that, but at least Japan's opened up some of those things and Japan's been one of the more strict uh, countries. But then the other direction of this is talking about moving in the direction of actual general tourism and they're actually running a test case i think salim is at what 50 people <laughs> i think they're going to do like this tiny test group of 50 yeah. people that are going to be monitored and they're going to use the results of that as, as a way to decide if um opening up things a little bit more to tourists is possible wow that's like a measured very measured approach and yeah the fact they're still talking about different layers like this like un- that's that's pretty unreal actually <laughs> It is. And Japan's been very strict in terms of letting people into the country. But it's always been a bit weird because... We've in all- COVID though, or before? Because it seemed to me it was not that difficult to get in here. You know, you have the visa on arrival. But you, oh, when yeah, you say yeah. that, be- do you mean in COVID? Yeah, or? before COVID, it was really easy. I mean, if you were from yeah. a you know, Western country, typically, uh, visa on arrival. Um, I'm, I mean, post-COVID, you know, Forget the forget the initial part where you know everywhere was locked down, but even when the world started easing up on tr- in terms of people traveling uh, internationally, um, Japan. I mean, because I mean, Japan always let its own citizens come whenever whenever they wanted to come back, uh, and there were uh, various degrees of quarantining or not quarantining, um, depending on on when this was. But f- from from my perspective, especially over the past maybe let's say half year, where most of the country's already been uh, double vaccinated, um, a lot of people have been uh, boosted, and still taking this super cautious, cautious approach towards letting people in, uh, I'm like, well, we, you know, if you're letting in Japanese people who are going abroad for tourism purposes. And coming back, for instance, how does that really make too much of a difference uh, from someone, uh, a foreigner coming into Japan for tourism purposes? Um, I get it. In, you know, what happens if they get sick whilst here? Do they mm-hmm. are they insured? You know, all those questions um, come to come to mind. But um, there are probably ways to deal with that, whether it's through. Um, you know, travel insurance that insures um, uh, insures against the person if they get COVID, for instance, in country, um, they can make that mandatory or, or or whatever whatever the you know whatever it is. There are probably ways of getting around in, it. If they come in with like certain countries, you know, you have to have to be be at least double vaccinated. Yeah, exactly. Be double so vaxxed. When, um, yeah. and if they did get sick, they may not have you know anything serious in terms of symptoms. Exactly. So, yeah. Exactly. I could see a year ago or a year and a half ago. What What would a COVID patient from abroad mean to the Japanese healthcare system? You know, seems like something about a year and a half ago in terms of, you know, what the mystery of of that because there were still so many questions. But if you come into a country double vaccinated, for instance, when I had two weeks ago, it was fairly mild. It was about three to four days. Certainly didn't need to go to the hospital. I know that's not the same for everyone, but with certain restrictions and parameters in place, you, I think you could, you could cover that off. Exactly. Yeah. So 
a bit too strict in my opinion, but um, at least we're kind of opening up. I want to come back. I want to come visit. <laughs> You're always welcome uh, once, once those borders open up. Um, and I'm bringing all the equipment with me. Yeah. How cool would that be for you to actually um, record a session again from, from Tokyo? Uh, It'd be amazing. I'd, yeah, that'd be awesome. We'd have to think about that. Would we set it up? Like, would we just go to like one of your places or would we set up in the middle of uh, Shibuya Station or something? I don't know. <laughs> I think it would have to be, uh, we'd have to take in the background ambiance somehow. That would be cool. Tokyo. I mean, in, in its own way, right? We'll definitely think mm-hmm. about that. Let's uh, let's do that. Well, speaking of that, in terms of uh, setting up things, I, I recently uh, did uh, another PA uh, announcing job with the Pickering Panthers uh, last week, and I've we've I've shared it a couple times, talked about it a couple times with Paul, and I know I've told you guys about it outside of the podcast. But uh, yeah, I uh, I did want to let people know that after a couple months of not really hearing from them, I got a call. Uh, last week, it was on Friday, and my son and I were planning on actually going to the game because they were in the finals, the very finals of the Buckland Cup, it's called. It's the Stanley Cup version of the OJHL. And uh, my son and I were going to go because I really wanted to see some games. And then I got COVID before that, so I, it really knocked out a lot of activities. And uh, yeah, I got a call at three o'clock, I think, on Friday last week, saying from next. You know, you always know when I see the name on the on my phone what it's going to be about. And uh, so yeah, I was lucky enough to go back last week and do game six, which would have been an, was an elimination game. Pickering had they won, which unfortunately they didn't win that game, would have. Um, would have, uh, yeah, so I was at that game. They would have clinched, but uh, it was really cool just getting pulled into a game of, of high consequence. Yeah, absolutely. Any highlights from that game that stuck out? Yeah. How, uh, well, I was telling my dad yesterday that uh, usually each game includes some mispronunciation of a player's name <laughs> um, or screwing it up. Like, uh, so the, the prep materials, which sometimes there, there's a lot and sometimes there isn't. Mm-hmm. Um, there is a resource within the, the, the system that, that we work within mm-hmm. where we can get player pronunciations for each of the teams. And lo and behold, when I went to this team that I was in, it was the Toronto Junior Canadians, they didn't, uh, I'd never seen the roster before. The mm-hmm. games I'd done before were, were, even repeats of other cities that were playing, but this team brand new, never heard, never knew any of them. And for some reason, they were the only team in the 30 teams that didn't have player pronunciation guide, a guideline. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. I had to go into that uh, blind. So I was, uh, I, so one of the, now it was a, it was a high sticking penalty. It was for one of the players and his name was Lovetto, L O V E T O. So I, I, I said, uh, Toronto penalty to number 71, Jared Levedo. And <laughs> he's in the penalty box right beside me. He's like, there's no way in my name. <laughs> <laughs> and, and as you know, you're, you're reading it, right? And you want it to be succinct and, and it's being broadcast over the speaker system. Yeah. So I had to use the brain to process. What is he talking about? 
I look at the name and I said, where is he saying the A? And, and I'm not, this isn't like, this is all happening within like two seconds, right? But it feels right, like right, this yeah. long. So I had to calmly figure out, what's he talking about? Leve- oh, I said Levedo and said Levedo. So, so you always say that twice. So on the so you recount, you summarize it. So I said, penalty. So I went through it and then I just said, um, to uh, number 77, two minutes uh, for Levedo. Thank you. <laughs> Time six fourteen, so it was uh, it was kind of funny. So that would have been maybe one of the highlights was uh, just just getting corrected from the penalty box by yeah. one of the opposing players. And I turned him after, said sorry about that, and he's like, "No worries, man." And some sometimes they come in, and they they had gone in for uh, high sticking, and the other guy got an unsportsmanlike. So there was a bit of a jarring between the two of them, screaming across. So we sit right in the middle between the two penalty boxes. Oh, wow. So sometimes you will get like you know a lot of colorful language being shouted yeah. through us to the other side, hmm. and banging of sticks and stuff. And when they come in to give the referee, the referee will give us the you know what mm-hmm. the details are. And quite often they'll be slamming their sticks and we're like, we can't hear it. And then the raffle skate away and we're like, sometimes we have to buzz them to come back. So that that's, that's one of the interesting parts of that job is just where you're positioned on the ice and you can be right literally in the middle of some heated moments. Wow. Got to make sure that mic isn't hot when they're cursing at each other, right? There's a, f- yeah, they probably wouldn't pick them up. And that's one thing about the system there. It's not the greatest. You really have to pound your voice into the center of the mm-hmm. mic to get it to. Mm-hmm. And right. I've re- so it wouldn't, hot mic isn't too, too bad of uh, an issue there. But there have been times where my colleague, who's uh, the music scorekeeper, um, basically every timekeeper, he does everything. I've got one job that's to speak when a, there's something happens. Mm. His job is everything else. So there's been a couple of times where I've said to him, well, I'll criticize something or, or mention, <laughs> um, and I'll, and I'll just look at that on switch, make sure it's switched off. Right. Right. I doubt it would pick it up, but there are a few times where I've had to double check that it's, you know, not live or hot. Wow. That's fantastic. So when you say you have a resource that provides kind of in advance the pronunciations, I'm sure they break it down by syllable and there's different yeah. different ways for you to to know where to emphasize and things like that. Is that coming from like a, a PR communications department of the team, the visiting team or it's coming from the league uh, it's like a media guide or or yeah, it's coming from the league. So all the teams are listed in there. So it's like a in fact, you, anyone can Google like OJHL player pronunciations mm-hmm. and, and, and probably find it. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it just so happened for that one team, there were none. And there were only a couple tricky names. And actually, I'll, I'll finish with this. The, the, um, there was one player that plays for Pickering who's got what I've always viewed as the most complicated name to say. And the games that I did up to this point, he never factored into any of them, but I was always concerned... What am I going to do when he does? And uh, so his name is, is that the, his, what, one of the one of those Greek names. That's right. Right. So right, right, yeah. I forget his I forget his first name because it's fairly basic. But his last name is Papa Spiropolis. Papa Spiropolis. And mm. he scored a goal and an assist in the last game. So I I I had fun with that one. It's just uh, 
uh, I just went all out and it, it went and went okay. I think I pronounced it right, but uh, that was the one I was always so afraid I was going to trip over. Do if, you if I ever had to do it? Do you go like with those, especially with those longer names? Do you go kind of like I don't know how do you say like sing songy with the names like Papa Yeah, yeah. like in, yeah. Do, do, do yeah. Do you do any of that? Oh, okay. I do. And, and you know, it's funny because I always, when I thought of doing this job, uh, my belief was it was going to be f- done in a fairly uh, straight way, like mm. not to be, you know, the big crazy uh, Vegas, like the Vegas Knights, for example, have a very animated mm. uh, PA announcer. And I was like, no, that is not me. I, I like being more, uh, you know, official about it i'm mm. not here to rally the crowd i never saw myself as a crowd rallier mm. kind of cheerleader person mm. however it kind of came in naturally that mm. when i did like for one of the jobs of this role is to announce the players the starting lineups mm-hmm. right and so they they all each team stands on the blue line before the game starts uh before the anthem and gets introduced. So for the opposing team, it's always a very, you know, basic thing. But as I did the first and second game, third game, I started to put a little bit more color into it, but in a, not in a crazy way, not in a, in a way that was still authentic. Right. 1990 Chicago Bulls, Michael Jordan. Six, six from North Carolina. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like I didn't, I really do believe that, that the job of this is not to, to make this about me, um, which we've all seen sporting events where when it becomes about the refs or the umpires or about some side person that has nothing to do with anything in the game. Right. But in a sense that the game does need a little bit of a cheerleader kind of pep up the crowd. Mm-hmm. Uh, that is kind of what a PA announcer does. Mm-hmm. So I did it in a way I would say was pretty authentic to me and, and um, it worked. It worked. And I remember when I did that first game, I said, don't try to do anything except just the, the official business you're to do. Get that part accomplished. Mm. You know? Like, that's why I was so happy I got four games in the beginning. Because it it was like being called... I think I said this in one of the episodes. It's like getting called up as a player. If you're told, okay, you're going to be around for a couple of weeks, regardless of how you perform... So don't worry too much about one game being your only shot. So that's how I looked at this when I was told initially I had four games I was going to do. I mean, they could have cut ties with me after the first game if they thought I was horrible. But that really provided me with the option to say, okay, you know, warm up, get into it, get it right. Uh, you don't, it's not a one shot deal sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So now that you've gotten a taste of this, what do you feel about what? What are your feelings about it going forward? I mean, if they call you back and they say, "Hey, would you be interested for next season in a different capacity?" Or, you know, what what have you thought through what your response may be? Yeah. So the only capacity I would be interested in would be that capacity, like in the sense of, would you like to come back and do it? I guess the the difference would be you'd be the guy, so mm-hmm. you would now be the main person. And if you can't come one night, then we find your replacement. Mm-hmm. Um, the The only thing is, is my wife said to me, because she's been pretty cool about all this. She's been excited whenever I, like when I came to her last Friday and said, they need me tonight. <laughs> she's like, no way. I said, yeah, it's game six. And she, she's, uh, she's like, she got excited about it. And then, and then I did get a note after the, 
the next day I saying, thanks so much for filling in. She said, the, the woman I report to, she says, I'm pretty sure you're going to get offered the job full time next year if you're interested. Mm-hmm. So I told my wife that I said, yeah, I think they're going to get me. They're going to give it to me. And she's like, do you want it? Like, just think about it for a sec. How many games are we talking about? One to two times a week. Like, you've got a job, uh, you've got a family. Um, so think about what you're committing to. And I, and mm. so I, I've, I've talked to a friend of mine who is almost as excited about this as me, who has, who wants to be, uh, he says he'll be my backup and I think he would do a fine job of it. So my thinking is I would just tell them I'll do it for like 75% of the time I'll commit to it and then I'll have a backup Like, Mm. and I'll try to let you know as much in advance as possible. Like, I'm not going to be, you know, the reason I got called in was last minute cancellations by the main guy. Like, I couldn't believe it that that there were three times each, well, one time he got COVID and it was last minute and could be understandable, but I don't know what happened on game six. Like, short of being in a car accident or a death in the family, what makes you call three hours before a game to say I can't be there? So strange on a game on a game like that. So yeah, yeah, yeah. I think I think it's awesome that you've chased this. I mean, this is in in some ways what a boyhood dream and and something that you've pursued in in adulthood. Uh, it's it's a great example for pursuing your passions, and it's great for your your children to see. You know that this is something that's continuous. It's not just you know. Doesn't just stop in yeah. early adulthood when we're when we're kind of first striking out on our own. It can, it can keep going on throughout our adult life. And I really do see the value in it too, because all of what you just said, but it actually is very good practice for mm-hmm. being able to like in a speech. We've all had the 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 ums and ahs or whatever, and the. And the, the, maybe you need to just take a deep breath, gather yourself mid-speech and just pause and sort of collect yourself if maybe you've forgotten something. And it's okay, the audience is forgiving. But in something like this, because it's being broadcast, and it's not just like a, a, a speech, it's not a speech, it's official stuff that has to come out and be succinct and be heard. It's a different muscle that's being exercised with this type of uh, speaking. So it's actually very, I think really good for me. Mm-hmm. Stakes are higher too. You're, you're at risk of getting pummeled by a 110 kilogram defenseman. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, and, and, you know, in the description of the job, it will say ability to pivot in at the, at the last minute, like you have to be able to switch you could be handed information out of the blue that you need to broadcast. Um, and so there's all, there's definitely a, you know, needs to be able to pivot when necessary uh, in the job description. And uh, like, I've been doing pretty well with that so far. Um, but I think the best thing about it is the reps this is giving me um, like other, I guess like the sports industry in general, I, there are levels. So this is, you know, several levels below the NHL, but um, there are levels on the way up from here that, you know, I was thinking, do, could I put in my contract if I, if I get called to do a higher level game that I have permission from the organization to, to go do that, which typically happens in real sports, right? If coaches were, 
can talk to other teams if it's about a higher level position or whatever. And, you know, this is, this is, uh, not at all that serious, but the, the thing is, is there is, this is the minor leagues, what I'm doing. Um, but there, there are levels above that. Honestly, I really would love to be able to get a crack at going up to the next level. Um, so yeah, it's, it's, it's been fun. This episode is brought to you by Pace Painting. Pace Painting, serving all your painting needs, whether commercial or residential. Reach Pace Painting at paintwithpace at gmail.com or via their Facebook page, Pace Painting, Inc. Or call Peter at 289-356-7744. Paint with Pace. The other day I was thinking about animation and cartoons and about perceptions of those things in different places in the world. In Japan, animation or anime are very popular versions of content, of entertainment. You have it in book and manga form, and you have it in TV series and full-length feature films. And you have a lot of series that have been around for decades, some very prominent films that kind of were markers within the animation field. But if you look at that against maybe some countries like the US or maybe even Canada, I'm not sure as much. Clark, you can speak to that. There's this perception of animation for adults that for a long time, it was kind of like, well, wait a minute, cartoons are for kids. And maybe that's in part because we grew up with cartoons. We grew up with, you know, Tom and Jerry and Warner Brothers and Looney Tunes and everything in between. And then there just reaches a certain point where it's just purely focused on Hollywood features. And as an adult, you don't really consume those things. And to me, what's starting to shift, at least in the West, is, you know, before you might have had Pixar films, like especially like the early Pixar films, like Toy Story and all those things, where they were geared towards children. And they had these clever little wink, wink jokes that were for adults. And this happened in movies like Shrek and Toy Story and all these other ones. You had these jokes that were definitely for adults, but they were more wink, wink. And then as we've moved forward and as Pixar has kind of grown to be this model to try and be everything to everyone, they're, they're carrying some very adult themes, you know, everything from divorces to job loss to all kinds of just different heavy, you know, situations that are at the center of a lot of the stories for these uh, families and, and different characters that are in the films. And there's definitely an attempt by a lot of Hollywood. And I mean, this goes to Marvel and everything else for that matter to try and utilize content that plays to the nostalgia that we have from our youth, but is doing so in a more an adult way. But there's still this kind of general perception I find in the West around animation and around cartoons that a lot of it's for quote unquote kids. And obviously there's some exceptions like the Simpsons and family guy, and maybe even more recent ones like Archer that are, are definitely, mm. you know, purely geared for adults. But, you know, I, I think we've lost sight in a way too, because long ago there was a lot of animated stuff that was being made for adults. And there was a MTV had a whole series of stuff called uh, Adult Swim, uh, which one of them was based off of the Japanese anime uh, Eon Flux. Um, and then there were other ones like Bill Plimpton, who was a very famous uh, cartoonist who made a lot of great content that was wildly adult, but very, very creative stuff. 
and then you have Beavis and Butthead and, and things like that, that, that aired throughout the, the nineties. But a lot of that stuff kind of died down. And then, you know, you kind of go full cycle all the way back to now. And I still kind of find like the West has this perception of animated films. And I, I guess what I wanted to explore with you guys is why is it, or is it still that way in Canada or in the U.S., your perception? And also in Japan, why is the relationship with animation so different or maybe more ingrained that there isn't as much this hang up or stigma around animation from a standpoint of being consumed by adults just as much as children this when you say that stigma do you mean that kid like the stigma of kid adults shouldn't like this or is that what you mean when you say that that yeah i mean there's very prominent people within like the film criticism areas, entertainment industry, and even just people in general that I knew living in the US that just had this at arm's length about a lot of animated films. And, you know, Clark, we've talked about, you know, Miyazaki uh, films specifically, the famous Japanese uh, cartoonist illustrator who, who started Ghibli Studios years ago and has produced many, many famous films uh, from everything from Howl's Moving Castle to Spirited Away to Princess Mononoke to uh, My Neighbor Totoro, Porco Rosso, lots of really, really great animated films that, again- And Spirited- to, Yeah. And Spirited, we- uh, Spirited- Spirit of the West, it's a band. Spirited <laughs> Away yeah. is, uh, I believe, the most successful Japanese movie of all time, whether it's re- animated or not, I, I think, in terms of sales or revenue generated. Is or was. I think there's been like a couple of films in recent years that I think came up against it. Or I came pretty close. We'll have to, to get it, our but... producer to, to look that up. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, to, to your question, I guess the um, my question is, you know, you, Clark, you, you're worldly. You've lived in different countries you've been exposed to some of this stuff you're not necessarily the rule i would say you're more the exception for a lot of folks that i've encountered in north america when it comes to adults and their perceptions of animated films and i'm Hmm. just wondering what your exposure is to maybe folks like that i could add a little bit of color onto it later too with people i've encountered and then you know from your perspective salim i i believe from just some pre 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 notes pre comments that you've made that there is a, a a strong affinity that you have to a lot of um animated content yeah so my um my exposure to animation is really from my friend mike who's been on this podcast a couple times he's the the, the special effects guy um Mike was influential in me learning about who Miyazaki was. I didn't, I didn't know who he was. I didn't, I, and Spirited Away, I had heard from through Tim Ferriss, his podcast. It's one of his favorite movies of all time. Um, so I knew about it. And then, I, but then Mike is one who connected it to the whole Miyazaki thing that there's other movies other than, than Spirited Away. And, um, as a kid, I grew up watching the stuff you described, the Warner Brothers, the Looney Tunes. And um, then I remember Batman had an animated cartoon that uh, I remember my dad would come by while I was watching it and be like, what are you, why are you watching that? Like, what are you watching cartoons for? This is when I was probably 16, maybe. And I really enjoyed this Batman cartoon. It was got a bit of darkness to it, like Batman typically does, mm-hmm. versus that zany, goofy stuff that a lot of cartoons, you know, was well, certainly not a SpongeBob uh, Batman cartoon. Um 
but I what I've found is that my my thirst for that had gone away. I didn't really care too much about animation until I rediscovered it through Miyazaki. Um, and fortunately, I actually got to see the the studio Ghibli or Ghibli. I'm always not sure how to say it, but I did get to see the studios in Tokyo, which were incredible. If you get a chance or haven't, for anyone listening to this, if you get to Japan and have any interest in animation or, or Miyazaki, go to that, that museum. It's fantastic. Um, but I would say generally it's, it's more of niche here. Like the average person isn't watching cartoons, isn't reading comics. It's definitely a niche thing, uh, at least far from where I sit. But I tried to introduce my kids to Miyazaki and they, they, they liked it. Um, I don't know they'd voluntarily look it up and watch it on their own, but I tried to plant that seed because I thought the Miyazaki stuff in particular has such a, it's, it's such good, it's so good. It's so good. And um, anyway, I'll stop there because I want Salim to have a chance to chime in. Well, I mean, you, you raised an interesting point there where even though you may, you may try to introduce your children um, to Miyazaki's films, the Studio Ghibli films, it's not necessarily easy for for children to jump straight in. Um, and they'd probably be watching the the English dub version. Not that it makes. I mean, I'm always a fan of the the original, the or- original language. Although animation actually does make it a little bit easier, even if it's even if it's dubbed to to follow through. There's no, there's not, there's not the same level of um. You know, lip sync, uh, the syncing yeah, of the words, yeah, not the matching. of the word, yeah, not matching that kind of stuff. I, 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 I yeah. I'm always a fan of. Uh, I always, I, I can't stand dubbed. Um, I always watch it in subtitles, but Agreed, with animation, it's a little bit easier to to accept. And we um, did as with the kids there. I figured if I'm going to get them on board, I think I have a better chance of doing it with the the dubbed yeah. English voices versus you know that that figure. That's another layer we can go to another time if you get into it, but. Yeah, exactly yeah. right. Um, but for so for me, so Miyazaki is uh, you know, it's not necessarily f- it's. I wouldn't necessarily say it's even for children, right? It's um, there are messages to be taken from Miyazaki's films, uh, whatever whatever they are, and and there are and there are plenty, and um, they're almost all all very good, uh, in my opinion. I'm, I'm a big fan. Uh, and I think if anything, they're, they're geared more towards, um, adult audiences, right? Um, Spirited Away, for instance, uh, it's just, it's, it's a beautiful movie. Um, Mm -hmm. I, I, I love it. And it's it's certainly one of my favorite, uh, and, uh, it came out, it, that was released in 2001 when I was about, when I was, I was nine years old then, uh, and I saw it back then. And even as a child, you kind of don't, it, you don't really understand it on, on, on the first go. Uh, mm-hmm. you watch it as a child, you kind of, you, you enjoy some of, some of the, uh, sorry, the, um, you know, what the, the story and, uh, you know, you, you can follow through, but then, you know, when you watch it multiple times, when you watch it as, as an adult, you understand some of the more sort of, uh, difficult themes with it within that movie, for instance. And I won't go through, uh, them because if anyone hasn't watched them, uh, I, I do want them to, to just watch it and, and, and see how, to, see what they think. Something like my neighbor Totoro, um, was something I, I watched growing up 
and and in in that movie even though you know there are uh you know it's 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 very it's very much fantasy right it's not it's not it's not um it's 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 fantasy uh animation but there are themes in there that are very deep right they talk about um things like you know moving away and um and uh, and disease and uh, and sort of sort of sickness disease death mm-hmm. um lots of difficult topics are um are explored in that and um one that's maybe i i, I don't know whether this is more maybe it's not necessarily more um famous or popular but one of uh, Studio Ghibli's er- even earlier uh, creations, and I don't think I think Miyazaki was not the director for this one, but Grave of the Fireflies. Yes, is uh, um, I mean, it, it <laughs> just saying the title, um, you know, uh, it makes me makes me shiver a bit. It's one of the it's one of those, in my opinion, one of the most profound movies I've ever seen in my life, mm-hmm. um, and um, probably one of the it is by far the saddest movie I've ever seen in yes. my life. Um, yeah. as an, and it is an animation. Uh, one I would encourage anyone to watch, especially um, in spite, especially not in spite of, especially considering uh, what's going on uh, with mm-hmm. the war in Ukraine, for instance, mm-hmm. and, and, and conf- conflicts around the world, because it explores mm-hmm. the very, very human side of, um, of, of war and conflict and, and how that impacts uh, the individual. Right. Um, so, again, all of all, all I've spoken about right now. I mean, and I've spoken more about sort of um, Gib- Ghibli and uh, Studio Ghibli, uh, but it it shouldn't necessarily just be about that, right? I think um, whether it's whether it's Studio Ghibli or whether it's something like something that I watched growing up, um, like the Flintstones, for instance. It's a an American um, cartoon um, animation uh, that, even though you can, I, I suppose again, perhaps geared for children. But uh, I remember vividly when I was watching it as a child. My father would sort of come into the room uh, where I was watching TV, and and he'd watch the Flintstones for a bit, and you know they say, "Ah, oh, they're they're exploring some sort of really interesting topics here." You know, this is this is this is a good it's it's a good cartoon. I, hmm. I encourage you to continue watching this. Oh interesting. Uh, Would he so, laugh at things that you were like, what what was funny about that? Or like that kind of thing too? Or Yeah, I, I, and and there was a bit of that as well. Um there will there will always be things that, you know, as a kid you probably wouldn't have wouldn't understand and if when you rewatch it as an adult you pick up on it's like, oh, okay. And now I get it. Um but yeah, there. I, I I don't think there should be any stigma around um, whether, whatever you want to call it, cartoon, anim, anime, animation, um, except if it's SpongeBob. Even, I, <laughs> I, I, I maybe, I, and I, I'll admit, I have never given it much of a, maybe a chance. But SpongeBob seems like that kind of cartoon, and you guys can maybe have more to say. But if if I was to see an adult watching that. A lot. I would question them. Oh, there's perhaps. no question. Is that no, no, no? There's no question. The answer is they smoke a lot of weed. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> like, I, mean, I would have. I to mean, think, I'll be, hmm. I'll be transparent here. The people I knew that that watched a lot of it, they smoked a lot of weed. So, so 
<laughs> the people I know who have watched it typically are under 10. So I, 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 and this is where maybe going back to your original point, Justin, is that my dad, when he walked by and saw the, and he has a lot of colorful things to say about SpongeBob because he just, <laughs> He used to watch my nephew watching it and was like, what is going on there? Like, this is just not right. Um, I've never well, seen anything right. more like brainless than that. Do, do you, either of you remember a cartoon called Ren and Stimpy? Yes. Yeah. Okay. So this was kind of like all in that same period in the mid, mid to late 90s, Nickelodeon had these shows like Ren and Stimpy, Rugrats, and a few others like it. And not only the illustration, but the storylines were a bit, a bit in the kind of like psychedelic, psychotropic type of direction. And I think a lot of it is just stemming from the fact that their writers were mostly, you know, children of the sixties themselves. And huh. if you, if you look at some of the stuff that was kind of coming out around then, it was just like, you know, if they weren't dropping acid, then they were, they were doing it at some point <laughs> to be coming up right. these landscapes. So, you know, I, I feel like SpongeBob in some ways is an, almost an homage to some of that stuff. I'm sure those illustrators mm -hmm. grew up on those previous illustrators. That's my feel. That's my tone sense of that stuff. But yeah, to your point, I mean, what is it about? <laughs> I don't know. It's, it's not, it's nonsensical. Um, yeah. But but there's but there's fun there's fun in that isn't there I mean I I, I can watch SpongeBob now and I I'm, I know I'm not learning anything I might not necessarily be learning anything from it but uh, and and you know who knows maybe there there is something to be to be learned as well but uh, it, it as entertainment why not mm -hmm. maybe a second chance for SpongeBob Justin you were going to say something there. Well, I, I mean, Salim kind of made a, made a comment there that made me kind of think about what I was going to mention too, which is, you know, it doesn't have to be about something. You know, it could be escapism, right? Um, and animation, yeah. just like any other form of entertainment, has escapism as a platform. But what I was curious to ask Salim from his perception, having been a, a large part of his life here in Japan, you know, what is it about animation, you know, that that is is you know, it's it's one of the main channels of entertainment in a way, right? It's it's just another part of the language of articulating the human experience. You know, you were saying about you know, uh, Grave of the Fireflies. You know, no different than in my mind than uh, Porco Rosso or The Wind Rises. Those are also movies that were very yeah. much about war and about things going on around the war and the people caught up in it in different ways humanizing them, but also the human experience that everyone experiences, regardless of the timing. And I'm just curious, like, what is it about animation that's just one of the main languages here in Japan of articulating <laughs> the human experience or 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 entertainment in general? Like why is it that in Japan it's it's very prevalent? Is it just is it the permeation of it from childhood? Is it that there's so much content that kind of helps you graduate from, you know, elementary, junior high, high, college, university? Like, is there just so much content at each stage that everyone's so used yeah. to? It? Like, what's your perception of, of why it's... I, I think, I mean, his, there's there's definitely the historical context mm. as um, to begin with, right? I mean, um, and I don't, I don't know whether this is directly related or not, um, but something like... Uh, Ukiyo-e, which was sort mm -hmm. of um, an early form of telling stories with pictures, 
um, with images in Japan. Uh, I don't know whether that was during the Edo period or not, um, but it would be, I, 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 I'm guessing from, you know, 400 maybe odd years ago, uh, and, um, don't quote me on this, but there's always been, a, 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 a sort of historically, um, in Japan, a culture of telling, uh, stories through images and i think that moved into moved into manga moved into um anime eventually and there's just so much content out there so much you know, good content out there and there's content for everyone right so um when there's something for everyone it's very hard to dismiss uh anime as a as a medium for just children, for instance, or for mm. just one segment of uh, the community, there's literally something for everyone. And when there's something for everyone, it's very hard for for you to wholesale say, "Well, this is not um, it's not for me." Uh, I don't mm. think there's um, anyone in Japan who doesn't who doesn't appreciate one one type of another one type or another of uh, of, of anime. Uh, whether it was just in a certain part of their life, or you know, as they uh, as they grew up through through different stages of their lives as well. So, mm. I just want to clarify for our listeners: when you say ukiyo-e, you're talking about like woodblock prints, right? Like uh, woodblock prints, yeah, initial, yeah, right. The, okay, so for our listeners, you know, ukiyo-e is like original imagery as a storytelling device, right? In Japanese culture, yep. right? So yeah, a yeah. famous one would be for our listeners, they might recognize the famous Hokusai Great Wave. The the tsunami right, yeah. wave would be one of the more famous images that I would say our listeners, international listeners, might recognize as a Japanese woodblock print. These were prints exactly. that were carved by artisans to then reprint an an original image created by someone like Hokusai or other famous artists like Hiroshige, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Okay. So there, I'll there's, put, yeah, uh, yeah. there's I'll put a that in the show there. notes as yeah. well. The I'm looking at the at the, the Hokusai, like Hokusai. I see the tidal wave. Thirty six views of Mount Fuji, mm-hmm. um, Fuji Cotton. These are some of these. Uh, so Hokusai is the is the artist. artist? Yes, ah, artist, yeah, not yeah. the not the not the style of the art, or has that almost become one and the same? No artist. Mm. <laughs> There, there were def- he, he definitely the had, artist, yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. you know, he definitely had emulators, cop- you know, people who tried to copy his his style. Um, yeah, <laughs> every 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 uh, genre of art and every era of art has had people, you know, who also wanted to make money. <laughs> so <laughs> they said, "Oh, this guy's doing well. I'm going to try and copy that style, crib that style." So, yeah. So we we got to move on, but before we do, I just one thing about maybe it's more fairy tales than cartoons, but I think cartoons also je- sort of go into this direction is morality tales, mm. you know, where it's trying to teach something, you know, mm. Hansel and Gretel, yeah, uh, don't talk to strangers, uh, you know, otherwise you might end up in a, a little, you know, as tempting as it may be, uh, you could end up in a lot of trouble, you know, yeah. listen to your parents, but also the conflict of the parents they had marital problems like so these the, the whole all these dark themes i mean they go back to the 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 grim brothers days of trying to teach and educate through that's a whole other topic in a way it's like 
would you rather teach your kids lessons through passing, reading them Hansel and Gretel, or do you just sit down and say, hey, don't talk to strangers, or some hybrid of both? <laughs> I think we'll skip what we're watching, because um, we're running out of time, and we sort of went through a bit of that through this topic. So let's, uh, let's go into the, the weird news story that uh, has a little bit of, I think, conversation involved in terms of what would we do perhaps in this scenario, but the scenario Salim brought to us, um, it's a man, Japanese man got town's COVID funds in error. Police say he gambled it away. Rather than return the 360,000 in COVID-19 aid that his small town mistakenly wired to his personal bank account, Sho Taguchi gambled most of the money away online, police said. Now the 24-year-old has been arrested after admitting having spent most of the money that was intended as pandemic relief for low-income houses. And it's caused quite a stir, apparently, in the town he lives in, a lot of media attention and outrage. These uh, It says here, the, the subsidies were deposited into his bank account in April. Each of the 463 low-income households in Abu, which has a population of just $3,000, was supposed to receive seven hundred. And eighty dollars, huh? So it, it it ended up in his bank in, in error, and he just. I wonder if he thought he had a windfall here and just went <laughs> ahead with it. But uh, interesting uh, situation there. So the guy got this um, this amount about three hundred and sixty thousand um, U.S. dollars equivalent, and um, the next day, I think it was the next. Next day, the town realized that they'd sent, um, or a few days later, the town realized that they made a mistake. They sent him this cash. Um, so they, they, they sent a representative to his house. And um, he said, yeah, okay, sure, I'll, I'll return the cash. And um, went with the representative all the way to sort of the bank's doorstep and then decided, ah, wait, I'm not going to do this today. Uh, and went, and th- so this is what what's what's been what's been being said in the media, right? So uh, he he, go- he goes back, and I think then he sort of mulls over the, his his situation, and uh, then he makes um, a number of uh, transfers uh, through like an intermediary uh, payments facilitator, uh, where he. Um, puts money into uh, an online casino, um, online gambling site, and yeah, uh, gambles away 300, uh, almost all the money, right? So uh, gambles away the whole $360,000. I don't know in the space of how long, but that's what, that, that's what he did. And and so there's a lot of, uh, this story has gotten, gotten a lot of attention in Japan, uh, you know, and uh, the guy eventually got arrested. Um, and and he's he's been arrested on charges of computer fraud, uh, whatever that means. Uh, I and so I, I want to sort of just go like jump in right here, like straight away with my two cents on on this situation. Right, first of all, so town wires you the money uh, in, by by mistake. You probably know it's uh, it's it, you you got it by mistake. I suppose one could just be like, okay. Uh, I'm going to do the right thing and return the money. Okay, that's one. That's one way of doing it. Technically speaking, he's not under, and I don't know whether whether this is legally the the correct sort of um, 
legally correct or not. But I, 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 as far as I know, there's no legal obligation for the guy to have returned the money. He gets the money. There's no, he does, he's not obligated to return it. He can't, no, no one can force him to do that. Um, so it's either voluntary or not. Uh, so he goes, he's, he, he says, ah, well, I'm gonna, I'm gonna keep the money and I'm gonna go uh, and gamble it, um, all away or, you know, maybe, maybe get lucky. Uh, and then now he's ar- being arrested on these charges of computer fraud. I don't know what, what, what is the definition of computer fraud. Um, but it sounds to me like a, um, you know, the, the police just put a charge sort of together, some kind of a, mm. a, a charge together to, to arrest the person so the town can save face because they've essentially messed up, right? And they sent um, a lot of money to the wrong person. Um, so I'm, I'm on team Taguchi, uh, and, and say, let the guy go. I mean, town made a mistake. He decided not to, not to be, not to be a hero. And, and that's that. Mm -hmm. So that's, that's my two cents. Okay. I I guess that's the first question then. It was, okay. So you said there was seemed to be no legal obligation for him to return it. (sighs) That's a, I mean, that's a question is, was he, was he entitled to just take advantage of this mistake and assume it was his own that to, to, to take this money and, and do, I, I, I don't think so. I think that was, I think that they have the right to come to him and say, you shouldn't have, you can't just keep this money. I, I, I don't think that's right that he can just put his hands up and say, sorry, I gambled it all away. I think there <laughs> should be consequences for that. Well, legally. Right, that's the requirement. Right, I mean, in some in some places, that is that is the law. Right, and a bank could try, like, if a bank mistakenly put a million dollars into your account, in some places, you know, if you were to spend that money, you're liable for that money because it's not mm. yours. And the, yeah, um, even though it's the bank's error, they know that you're aware that <laughs> you didn't suddenly just um, get a million dollars. If it's a few hundred bucks, you know, maybe it's a simple mistake and that could be dealt with, but different story when it's this huge sum that's mistakenly put in there but to your comment about there should be repercussions um it's being argued right now and uh lawyer turned lawmaker turned osaka governor uh hashimoto toru said the law is unclear Uh, he said that previous civil and criminal judgments have deferred but he also asserted the point that uh the town of abu made a mistake by not attempting to freeze the man's account by the methods that were available to them. They could have actually done mm. that independent of having to go visit him. So as soon as they realized mm. the error and before he withdrew the money, they actually had ways to have gone about that, to put a temporary freeze on his account. Oh, okay. Um, and Hashimoto also said that if he was the man's lawyer, I don't know if he's, he's you know, trying to put his hand up to, to become the guy's lawyer, <laughs> he said he would consider suing the town for compensation for putting him in this stressful position in the first place. Um, he he doesn't know whether or not he has a genuine claim, but he's he's suggesting he's suggesting it as a negotiating gambit because um, I don't know if he's I don't know if he's of the competing theory side, which I'll get into in one second. But he him throwing this out there in that way, I think to me says that uh, he doesn't really believe in the computer fraud thing, kind of you know to 
Salim's point about like what what does computer fraud uh, constitute? You know, it could be a phishing expedition, could just be a way to kind of ensnare him in this for long enough to 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 put some of it, the blowback on him instead of the town. Um, but the competing theory thing that I was mentioning, actually, there's some prominent political commentators that are are theorizing that uh, the reason this this story has really taken off and has kind of quote unquote captured the attention and a lot of heat has been put on it is because uh, about a week or two there was starting to be a little bit of pressure to do some auditing of the uh, government's use of public funds for covid relief and mm-hmm. some people believe that this is kind of to take some of the scent off of that so there's not so much of a a, a drive to to take an accounting of maybe how funds were misused throughout the last two years. Um, you know, one of the big cases was the Abe masks that were a complete disaster and a, and a complete oh. of money. So, um, yeah, that, that's, that's one of those kind of, um, conspiracy theory side things that are kind of going on around this story too, is, is this all just, you know, obfuscation to get people off the scent of other things? <laughs> yeah. And, and I, I also feel that the guy was kind of almost an easy target, right? He's he's mm-hmm. 24 years old. He's yep. unemployed. Yep. Mm. Um, you know, he kind of looks looks a bit sketchy. You know, uh, <laughs> if if we are, I mean, not not I mean, not in my eyes, but sort of if you were a, a typical typical person in Japan, right, who doesn't know the world, you'd say, oh, you know, oh, that guy, I mean, he, he's probably a bad person, he looks a bit sketchy, and he he, sp- he spent it all sort of on, you know, online gambling. So, I can see why it's it's a, it's a story that, it, you know, it's it's easy to make this, the kind of story, that kind of story stick. I, I, I you know, when I, I consider myself someone that can see various sides to a situation, and I'm. I, I want to be on one side of the fence with it, but I, I at the same time I do kind of get your point about the whole. Hey, too bad you put the money into the guy's bank account. Uh, that's your problem. He took it, spent it, but didn't he say he was going to return it, and then he decided not to? So yeah, you could argue that he did say, "Hey, I'm going to do this," and then went ahead and found other ways to put that money to use <laughs> than to return it. But uh, yeah, I think, um, I, well, before we wrap this up, the here's a question. Is there a quantum, if we look at situations where if you did find a certain amount in your bank account, because they came to him, right? Or did he, did he come back they and came, say- they, hey. they went to him. Okay. Is there a quantum that can land into your bank account that is a threshold of, do I call the bank and say, hey, there's $4,000 just came into my bank and I'm not sure what it's for. Can you clarify that? Or, you know, $50 or 200 depending on how meticulously you track your expenses. Is there a quantum that you would say is the one you question? Or, or do you just tuck the money aside, perhaps, and say, one day they may come looking for this, and if they do, I'll, I'll give it back? Mm. <laughs> that's, an, that's an interesting question. Or do we save that for another episode? Or is so, this like traveling to certain countries? Do you want to be careful about what we say here? Oh, yeah. <laughs> Justin's always concerned about uh, arriving at customs when they they take him to a, a, a room with a chair and a desk, and and he starts thinking about... On episode 24, you said this yes, in right. country. 
Uh huh. Yeah. Everyone's hesitating to say something. So but- no, wait, wait, wait. Like, um, maybe rephrase the question or um to clarify. Are you asking me how much money would I have to receive in error, for instance, for me to say I'm keeping this cash and I'm getting the getting the hell out of here? <laughs> well, I guess that yeah, that is sort of a different thing because. Yeah. And it also, I think, has to do with how well you track your finances. If if the bank accidentally gave me $67, I would not notice. Right. Um, if it was, uh, you know, a higher amount, maybe like, even then, my wife does most of the finances in our house. Um, I'm not sure that we would pick up, you know, a fairly, like, something in the hundreds of dollars, but... Um, I did have a situation. Clark is flexing (laughs) right now. (laughs) Yeah. I did have a situation where I was told, um, I'm going to keep it vague just because it's better. I probably do that, (laughs) that I owed a a significant quantum of money Mm. to a loan Um, shark. Yeah. (laughs) Was his name (laughs) that, uh, I didn't quite agree with, and I know by not revealing what it's about, um, but for fear of doing so, you know, causing me challenges later, I will say this, the, the this amount I was told I owed, I didn't appreciate that I did. And then I was given an explanation as to why I did uh, and said, fine. And a year and a half later, no one's ever asked me to send it to them. So mm-hmm. it's been sitting in uh, limbo. But I always said to my wife, there could be a day when they knock on the door and it's not a loan <laughs> shark. It's actually a... It's an official thing that, uh, that again, I'll be vague about. But uh, I guess after a certain amount of time, I'll probably think they've forgotten about it. And then maybe hmm. at some point, either some statute of limitations takes over and I'm in the clear, <laughs> yeah. or I will have to pay it back and probably with interest. <laughs> yeah, I say. Hopefully the juices have been going all this time. All right. Well, guys, we're at the hour. So I think we don't have a, we don't even have enough time to to get through a what we're watching, uh, even though I thought maybe we might have a chance to. But it was uh, great to get back on together. It's such a good opportunity to catch up. And uh, I don't know, any closing comments before we go? Or did we already do it? Did we do it? I don't know. Um, no, it's just, it's good to be, good to be back on the show again. Um, show, podcast. It's almost, yeah. it's like a show. Um, it is a show. It is yeah. a show, so, isn't it? Yeah. The Clark Levy show? No. <laughs> we talked about this with Clark and friends. CLS. With Clark and friends. Um, yeah, no, it's always always good to be back. And I'm um, looking forward to the next time where we can talk more about, um, yeah, all sorts of different things. Um, we've, I think we've opened the door to many different topics, so it'll be good to, to re-explore them. Typically that happens. It's like a rabbit trail. This, this, uh, these topics do tend to have different trails they can go to. Indeed. All right, guys, have a good uh, rest of your Sunday night and uh, till next time. Till next time.